Amen. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these, these songs, this worship time. Every single one of these songs just, just screamed out to us. We need Jesus. Said Jesus is the only one who can save. Or said, I need a rescue. And this is the message that you've given us in your word to you today. So bless us uh, as we come to it. Open our hearts and minds as we seek after you to learn what you have for us today. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Derek and team. Great job. I left this in there because I love you guys, too. Yeah. I couldn't find one. I couldn't find another plane that said I love you, too, but I figured this will work. Um, man, so good to be able to bring the word to you guys today. Always a privilege and thankful for the opportunity. So, we are continuing in the book of Ruth today and we are going to be in chapter 3. And I'm going to read that to start off. We are going to do the whole chapter today. The story really, really gets going here and it gets good, so we can't just stop right in the middle. we got to do this whole chapter. So, pull out your Bibles, your tablets, bring out your word and follow along with me as I read chapter 3 for us. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil, wear your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you were there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying, Go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down. At the end of the pile of barley, she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled. He turned over, and lying at his feet was a woman, so he asked, Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before, because you have not pursued the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that is good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark, and then Boaz said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He told Ruth, Bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into the town. Now she went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, What happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, He gave me these six measures of barley, because he said, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And Naomi said, My daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he will not rest until he resolves this today. May God bless the reading of his word. So, we come to this part of the story, 
And the entirety of Ruth is an amazing and wonderful story. But man, chapter 3 starts getting really, really good. I think if you were to try to sell this to the Hallmark Channel, they might tell you, there's no way, that's too crazy, because you can't make this stuff up. We're talking about, it's got all kinds of good stuff in there. There's ancient writings that are involved, and then there's this crazy romantic scheme that's just crazy enough to work kind of thing, and then you've got the suspense going on, what's going to happen, you're white-knuckling it, trying to find out what's going to happen. And then at the end, there's a twist big twist right at the end that you weren't expecting. Every good story's got to have a twist, right? All of this wrapped up together in one big thing, and just makes it such an amazing story for us to look at and see what God is doing in the lives of these people. But even more than that, it's an amazing story of what God is doing over the entire story of redemption of human history, all boiled down into this one human interaction. And that is what we're going to be looking at today. See how God is working in these circumstances and see how that speaks to us today, speaks to people who came long before them, speaks to God's story of redemption throughout all of our lives. So, let's do that together. We're going to start out, and we'll call this first section, we're going to look at God's redemption in a broken world. You see, some people who don't know God don't know him well, think that he's up there in heaven. He's not interested in what's going on in our lives. He's not interested in helping us out. He doesn't care about you or about me. Those people will try to tell you that. Like I said, they don't know the truth. Because that is completely wrong. God is up there, but he is intimately concerned about what goes on in the lives of every person here on earth. He understands that we are broken people, that we are living in a broken and sinful world, in a dangerous world, and a scary world. And because of this, he has not left us on our own in so many ways, especially when it comes to his people, the people that he's been able to speak to, to design the way that they live together and interact. He has put together certain things, and we see this over the course of biblical history, He has designed certain things in our lives that provide a safety net against this broken and dangerous world that we live in. Um, So you'll see some of these things in this chapter are an example of some of these institutions that he set up long ago. These are these ancient writings that we're talking about that were designed to help his people to protect them, specifically against just the ravages of what goes on in this world that we all experience every single day, just circumstances and all kinds of bad stuff that happens in all kinds of ways. He wants to help you out in the midst of that. So let's talk about some of these examples, some of the things he's done, especially in these Old Testament times. Uh, One thing that he's done, for instance, is, this is going to sound weird, but he instituted a form of slavery in the Old Testament that was designed to be a help to people. Again, that sounds super weird to our ears. And there are people, biblical critics, atheists, will tell you that the fact that the Bible endorses slavery is proof that it was not written by a good God. Because there is no way that a good God could endorse something like that. Literally, you can go online, you could, like, that's their point. Like, hey, I finally proved that the Bible wasn't written by God because it endorses slavery. 
Like, that's their entire argument. Um, so you're going to hear it. So this is why I'm telling you, because I like to prepare you guys for what you're going to hear out there. The fact that they say that, though, betrays a very shallow understanding of history, of what's going on in biblical times. They're obviously not reading everything that's going on. They find one thing to cherry pick and take it out of context and use it against us. But here is why it's not a bad thing. When people talk about slavery these days, obviously in this country, we're viewing it very much through the lens of the slavery that occurred in the American South, uh, which absolutely was a human atrocity, a complete crime against humanity. We are talking about from end to end, kidnapping humans from across the other side of the globe, destroying their families, destroying their communities, a torturous transport to uh, the Americas and Western Europe, imprisoned, uh, forced, concentrated labor. Uh, there, is, there is nothing good. This is absolute, absolute evil from end to end. Which is why people often neglect this part. The greatest force for the abolition of slavery in both Europe and the Americas was the church. Believers who could not stand by and watch other human beings be treated like animals anymore. So we, we agree that that form of slavery was absolute evil. As, as throughout human history, many, many, many cultures have engaged in an evil form of slavery like that. That is not what the Bible is talking about. Here is the picture of what slavery was in the Bible. As I said, it was actually instituted as a social safety net, as a protection. Because most of the families in Israel were what we call subsistence farmers. They were farming their own land to feed their family, maybe have enough goods to trade with other people for what they need. Very few people had trades. You might have had a blacksmith or a carpenter in town. Or, but most people were just trying to be their family, their property, their animals, their livestock. But that is a very, there is a razor-thin margin for error when you are living that kind of life. If there is an injury or an illness, dad gets injured or he's real sick and he can't work, that is a big problem. Or some kind of natural circumstance happened on your land that affects your crops or your animals, big, big problem. It's not just go to Walmart and get some more stuff. This is your stuff is now dead. And you are looking at, you can try begging. That's not a good way to feed a whole family. It's not going to work for a long time. Or you can uh, all starve to death. They did not have unemployment insurance. They did not have disability insurance. They did not have any of the things that we have instituted as those same kind of safety nets. So God designed a way to give people protection against these just disastrous circumstances. And that was to say, again, okay, let's say dad was injured, he can't work, this is really going to put a dent in things. What they could do is go to maybe their neighbor and say, we will sell you our land, give you our land, and we will become your servants and work the land, help you guys out. And in exchange, we still get to live in our house and still have our family together. And this is the kind of slavery that we're talking about. We might call it 
indentured servitude is maybe a less uh, unkind term, <laughs> but it was, it was a contract. We are going to give you the land and we are going to become your servants in order for your protection of us and your providing for us. We don't get to build wealth off our land, but we still get to eat off of it and you receive all the wealth. So this is what the Bible is endorsing. If the Bible were to forbid slavery, that would actually be more cruel because now you would be sentencing all these families to death or to begging on the streets. So this is the answer. It's not a quick answer, you know. If, if people want to hear it, we can give it to them, but it takes a little bit of nuance. But that is what is going on when the Bible talks about slavery. That was something that God designed, instituted in their society to protect people uh, from disastrous circumstances. Another thing that he designed that was going to be very pertinent to this story is what we call the kinsman redeemer. See a little definition here. The kinsman redeemer is a close male relative who can redeem people, property, or even justice. In a case where it was not carried out correctly, he can follow up on that and make sure the justice is taken care of in circumstances where needed. But it's not limited just to family circumstances like we're going to see here in Ruth. Going back to our slavery example. You know, let's say, the, you know, dad's hurt, so they sell the land to the neighbor. They're now serving him. Maybe then dad gets healed up, and it's possible he could work again. They could now provide for themselves, but their land is now belonging to their neighbor. If dad has a brother or a cousin who has the resources to come along and say, I am going to be a kinsman redeemer. I'm going to give you X amount of resources. You will give the land back to the family and they will be able to continue taking care of themselves at that point. He is restoring their property, he's restoring their freedom, and he's restoring uh, them to a certain extent, their dignity, their lives. So a kinsman redeemer, and there are other situations where a kinsman redeemer can come along and do that. When somebody's had to go into a situation where they no longer have control, kinsman redeemer can come in, provide assistance, get them out. Now, when it comes to the story of Ruth, this is what most of us think of when we think of the kinsman redeemer. We've had some interaction with this before. Is that a kinsman redeemer could also step in when a husband were to die, a woman were to be left widowed, whether she had children or not, uh, the husband's brother, or again, a cousin, whoever's next in line down the road, they had all that figured out. Uh, if he was single, if he was able to marry, he would step in and marry his brother's wife, redeeming her, saving her from dire circumstances again, being a widow again. They might very well end up like Ruth and Naomi, just begging, gleaning for food. Again, very difficult uh, to support yourself in those circumstances. So let me go back. I have a bookmark, but it's been in all my... Let me read from Deuteronomy 25. This is where God gives this instruction to Moses, and Moses passes it on to the people. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 10. Uh, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside of the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, 
so his name will be blotted will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his sister-in-law, she is to go to the elders at the city gate and say, "My brother-in-law refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a brother-in-law for me." The elders of his city will summon him and speak with him. If he persists and says, "I do not want to marry her," then his sister-in-law will approach him in the sight of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. Then she will declare, "This is what is done to a man who will not build up his brother's house, and his family's name in Israel will be the house of the man whose sandal was removed." So, ladies. It's a weirdly specific circumstance, but and certainly Lord forbid any of your husbands should pass away untimely, but if he does, um and his brother's able to marry, uh he's single and he can marry, you have the right to ask for that. And if he does not, you have the biblical right, nay, maybe even a responsibility to take his shoe off and spit in his face. And we will all call him Mr. No Shoe for the rest of his days. So, there you go. Good stuff. Um people say those books De- Deuteronomy Leviticus are no fun. I tell you there's there's some good stuff in there. Um <laughs> That's just a microcosm of what's and obviously it, they had it worked out where again yes uh, or a cousin could step in or somebody further down the line could step in. But yes, uh, one of the purposes was to preserve the family name. That was very important to the Hebrew folks. So if the man were to die without a son, uh then yes the relative would step in and take the the woman as his wife and the first son that they bear will be considered the son of the first man so he will carry on that name receive that inheritance and then the other children that they have will be theirs together and so it allows for taking care of both the woman in a very material kind of way and also that very important lineage uh that was so important to the israeli people so this is what we think of when we hear kinsman redeemer we do tend to think of the story of Ruth and we do tend to think of uh that man stepping in and taking care of that woman and her family which again something God has designed and instituted from way back when that was written hundreds of years uh, before Ruth and Naomi's situations that's that ancient writings we're looking back to right um and all of it is God's part of his design to take care of his people the care that he has the love that he has for us his heart hurts when we go through those kind of circumstances but he has designed these things to help us so this is a picture of God working his redeeming work in the midst of this broken and sinful and terrible world uh that we live in So now we're going to come to the second part which is now we're going to see God's redemption very specifically in broken lives in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. Pastor Scott has done a wonderful job of just delving into the depths of the experience that these women went through again having uh, both of their husbands die have Naomi having her children her sons die uh, just the depths of despair that that plunged them into being in a foreign land and then just having to come back just having absolutely nothing left being forced to beg and to glean just for food to get by every single day uh, the loss of dignity the loss of all kinds of stuff that's going on there uh, so there is no doubt of uh, the depth of their experience is going on right now but 
Pastor Scott touched on this right at the end of chapter 2 last week. As we come into this circumstance, they've come back home. They're doing what they have to do just to get by. But then Boaz comes into the picture, and we start to see some redeeming work in their hearts. We start to see the restoration of faith and of hope because they see God possibly at work here. I'm going to go back to the very end of chapter 2. In verse 19, uh, Naomi asks, you know, Ruth has been out working in this field, and Naomi asks, who's the man in this field that you're going to, who's showing such kindness to you, who's giving you extra food, who's giving you protections? And Ruth told her mother-in-law, whom she worked with, and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Remember at the beginning of the story, Pastor Scott pointed this out, Naomi was in such a, a, such a state of despair. She wanted to change her name. Naomi you know, means blessed, but she wanted to change it to Mara because of the bitter circumstances that she was in, because she felt alone, grieving in the midst of the circumstances the Lord had allowed to come to her. But when Boaz shows up, you can almost see this glimmer of hope, this little ray of light that shines into their lives all of a sudden. And now, she says, oh, may the Lord bless him. Now the Lord is not someone who brings bitterness and despair. The Lord is someone who brings blessings. You start to see a faith restored here as she's moving towards hope in the midst of these awful circumstances. Hasn't materially changed very much, but there is hope that the Lord is going to do something in their lives. So in Naomi's case, we see this faith start to be restored. We see her look forward in gladness to what the Lord is doing. And now we come to chapter 3, and we're going to get into this story here. There's also a device in storytelling that they call the ticking clock. They say in films and stuff, if you can put in a time frame where the goal has to be accomplished, that increases the tension. Now it's not just, oh, they're trying to get this done. It's like they have to get this done in the next two hours or everything falls apart. That is actually what's going on here as well. Because Boaz and all his men have finished harvesting their grain. They brought everything in which that is how Ruth was able to get food. All these other women as well were able to glean while they're harvesting the grain. They get to go behind and pick up all the little things that are left behind. But the harvesting is done now, so now how are they going to get food? So there's a little bit of, a, a little bit of an added motivation uh, to see what they can do in the midst of these circumstances right now. But Naomi's got a plan. She has got a good, good plan. Because the problem is, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, and it's, it's likely that he knows it as well. He would have been related to Naomi's husband. He would not have forgotten this. But Boaz is not making any moves towards this right now. Now, ladies, maybe some of you have experience with this. I will... Julia stepped out. Maybe she's in the restroom, so I'll, I'll go ahead with this story. <laughs> 
Um, Julie and I knew each other. We were friends before we ended up dating, and uh, but then eventually circumstances changed, and we came together, and we started dating. But uh, after after a few dates, we were getting together. She was getting a little impatient that I was not taking the next step. And so uh, one night after our date, I was going to go home. She was she was done waiting, and she kissed me. She was done waiting for the next step to happen, and she took matters into her own hands. Maybe some of you ladies have that same uh, experience. I don't know, but that's what happened for us. And thank goodness uh, that she did. So Naomi's getting like this. She's a little impatient. Uh, Boaz isn't. He's not. Uh, he's, whatever the reason is, maybe he's. Maybe it's even good. Maybe he's trying to be very kind, and obviously he is, and courteous, and caring for Ruth. Obviously he's taking care of this in a very serious way. But he's not making a move, which uh, she's really looking for. She needs something to happen here. So she's got a plan. Like I said, she knows that Boaz has finished harvesting his grain, and now comes the next step, which they're going to go out to the threshing floor. Which, real quickly, let me paint the picture. You know, Most of us don't necessarily know what that is. You know, you harvest your grain, and it's still got all the... You know, it's still on the stalk, and you've got the little wheat thingies on there, whatever they're called, <laughs> the grains, I don't know. <laughs> and they're in the husks still, and there's the leaves and all the stuff. So you've got you to separate that out. You just want the grains and not all the, the chaff, as we call it. So they take it to the threshing floor, and there might have been one for the whole town to use, you know, take turns using at harvest time, because not everybody has the resources to build their own. Whatever the, thing, the circumstances... She knows that Boaz is going to be taking all of his grain to the threshing floor. And then when it's there, you go through and you do that, all the work to separate. You can do it by hand if you, if you, really, if you really want to do that. Sometimes they had an animal dragging, you know, the big heavy rock or something over it that would crush it and separate uh, the good from the bad. And then you end up a big pile of everything all together. And what you do is, some of you have heard this, you wait for a breeze to come through. So Pueblo West would probably be a good place to do this. Um, and you get a big shovel of this stuff, and you wait for a breeze, and then you just throw it straight up in the air. And the wind comes, and what happens is all the husks and the leaves and the stalks are very light, and the wind blows those away. And the wheat is heavier. It's not heavy enough to be blown, so it just boom, falls back down. Pretty cool. You do that several yeah, probably hundreds of times, till you pretty much got just the wheat left, and you put it in the bags, take it back home. That's the whole process. So Naomi knows this is what uh, Boaz and his men are about to do together. And again, it seemed like Boaz had a pretty substantial piece of land, had had workers helping him out, so probably had quite a lot. And so it probably would have taken them several days to do this. And so what you would do in this case, which we're going to see here, excuse me, <clears throat> is you would actually stay there. You would camp out there and just keep working all day. You and all the guys would just grab sleeping bags and just sleep there. Uh, first and foremost, because you did not want somebody to steal your stuff. You didn't want somebody to steal your grain. So that was number one for security. Obviously, too, you could just wake up and get to work. You didn't have to travel back and forth, travel the stuff back and forth. So that was what was going to happen. They were going to be there for a few days working away at processing the grain. Naomi says, Ruth, here is what you're going to do. You go out there to the threshing floor, and you kind of just watch them as they're doing this. 
that probably would not have been weird. There probably would have been lots of people from the town, lots of women. Again, picking up, you know, trying to get those little pieces here and there, maybe hoping to get a little bit of a handout, um, or just families helping out. There would have been quite a, quite a few people around. So it wouldn't have been weird to see Ruth there uh, watching what was going on. Uh, but Naomi says, and then you, you hang out, even as it gets dark and into the evening, as the men have their meal together, you watch uh, what they're doing, and then when it's bedtime, you watch Boaz. Make sure it's Boaz, not one of those other guys. <laughs> and um, you see where Boaz goes and puts his sleeping bag, his blankets, and sets up his bed, and you take note of that. Then, once he's fallen asleep, once everybody's fallen asleep, you very quietly go over there and you lift up his blankets. <laughs> Again, this is just uh, the custom of the day. Uh, sort of at his feet and you lift him up and you lay down at his feet. And then he's going to tell you what to do. So Ruth says, okay. She might not have known what the customs were of the Israelis. She was, again, uh, from another land and other people. But she says, you tell me what to do, I'm going to do it. So here's the plan. And now Ruth goes into action. And she does exactly this. She goes out and watches. And she waits. And there's Julia coming back in. Julia, I told the story of how you kissed me first, in case anybody tells you about that later on. She took the first step. Um, here's what Ruth, Ruth is doing this now, too. She goes over, and she does. She watches where Boaz goes to sleep. He goes over and finds some blankets, lifts his blankets up, lays down at his feet in some form or fashion. And she waits. And then it says, got to be out midnight, pretty late in the night, and Boaz wakes up, which if you sleep with a spouse who is a blanket stealer, you probably have that experience. You wake up, you're shivering a little bit. you got to steal your blankets back from your spouse sometimes. So Boaz wakes up, and he's startled because... Uh, uh, it's one thing to wake up chilly from, you know, your spouse stealing your blankets. If it's another thing for a complete stranger to come in for the express purpose of stealing your blankets. <laughs> and uh, so he wakes up cold and scared. There's somebody laying at his feet. He says, who, who, what, what? <laughs> who are you? It's dark. He can't tell what's going on. Uh, and Ruth replies to him. Says, I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Even in just this little response, uh, we see a little bit of the growth that Ruth is experiencing as well as the Lord is working in her circumstances. If you go back to chapter 2, I lost my verse. Anyway, the first time Boaz asks Ruth who she is, you know, she said, and he, then he gives her the grain. He's taking care of her, tells her what to do. She says to him, you know, why are you being so kind to me? I am just a foreigner. I am nobody to you. You know, and you can sense this, uh, where she was in understanding of her self-worth. Um, yeah, her husband had died. She was helping uh, her mother-in-law, but she was now in a completely foreign land that she was having to learn the new customs and learn who was there and again just the loss of dignity that naturally comes from having to beg for your food uh, to go out into the fields and just pick up the scraps of the people who are going through and harvesting that's 
that weighs on you. So you can see that early on. She's like, I, I'm nobody. Why would you show compassion to me? But as Boaz continues to show kindness to her, you can see her also growing, her heart, excuse me, <clears throat> warming up a little bit as the Lord is working in her circumstances, working on her broken heart and her broken spirit. So now, when Boaz asks her the second time, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant. There's a relationship aspect there. She knows that he knows who she is. She knows that he has shown kindness to her. There's a trust that she has for him. And so you can see this growth. Just as Naomi is growing in her faith, in her trust of the Lord, Ruth is growing in her own identity, in her acceptance of what the Lord is doing as she's coming into this land of strangers and her experience of this God for the first time. And so she tells him, spread your wings over me. Which you remember last week, Pastor Scott brought that up at the end of chapter 2 as well uh, in reference to the psalm uh, where we want the Lord to spread his wings of protection over us. This is a very now specific version of that. Going back to that kinsman redeemer, the Lord has provided this, this institution, this way of protection, but now we need the specific way for it to play out. We want Ruth to be protected. She wants Boaz to very specifically spread her, spread his wings of protection over her, which is also a metaphor for the blanket. Put the blanket back over and put it over me. Take me in. It's a proposal is what it is. She is asking him, will you fulfill this duty of the kinsman redeemer? Will you marry me? Will you take me into your family? Will you restore and redeem me and my family as well? So this is what is going on. And then Boaz says to her, may the Lord bless you. See, there's always this constant focus on what the Lord is doing in the circumstances. He says, you have shown more kindness before because you have not pursued the younger men, whether rich or poor. Boaz understands he's maybe not the most handsome, youngest, uh, hottest bachelor on the block. He says, all these guys you're working for, you could have picked any one of them. But uh, you can see he has a sense of restoration. Well, thank you for showing me this kindness and this trust that you would come to me and uh, believe that I would redeem you. So he says, now, do not be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Other versions say a worthy woman, just like Boaz has already been described as a worthy man. Ruth and Naomi trust him because of his reputation, because of this kindness that he has shown to them. And now he knows from hearing of Ruth, what she has done for her mother-in-law, for everything that she has done. Everybody in the town knows that she has an excellent character. She is trustworthy. She is worthy of his response in this way as well. But there is a twist. Out of nowhere, you know, we think it should be right there, and they lived happily ever after. That would be excellent ending right there, right? But one more problem 
It is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. So again, this is how it works out through the family. They knew how it worked out. You know, it said in Deuteronomy, if a man has a brother, you know, and then it probably went out to first cousins or however those degrees work. Boaz, he knows he's a relative, but he says there's somebody who's next in line before I am. And so I have to follow the correct procedures. We have to check with him first to see if he will be the redeemer. But he tells her, do not worry, don't be afraid. If he does not, you will still be taken care of because I will do it. I will step in and be the redeemer. And then again, his care continues for her in a very real way. He says, lay down here, stay the rest of the night here. Number one, this would have been for her protection. This time was a very lawless. Uh, the time of the judges was a very scary time. So don't, don't go home in the dark in the middle of the night. That would be very dangerous, very scary. Stay right here with me through the night, and then we'll wake up early, and we'll send you off again. And then they do that. They wake up early. Now protecting her reputation, he doesn't want the other, his other men to see that she spent the night with him implying that there might have been some improper kind of relations that went on there. He wants her reputation as a worthy woman to remain intact, so he gets her up early, sends her on her way back home, and again, sends her with food to take care of her and Naomi for that day. So, Boaz just continues uh, to prove his character, uh, to prove uh, just the amount of the impact that the Lord had in his life, that he was so concerned about this woman in every single way that he would go out of his way to protect her. And of course, Naomi, she's, she's probably sitting at home. She probably did not sleep that night at all. <laughs> she's probably white-knuckling it at the door, waiting for Ruth to come home. Ruth comes home. What happened? What happened? What happened? And Ruth told her everything that happened. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he will not rest until he resolves this today. And so right there, one more one more thing to add into our story. The chapter ends on a cliffhanger. Come back next week to see what happened. Obviously, they didn't write chapters back then, but that's the, the idea. We're, now what's going to happen with this other Redeemer? And we will. We'll see that next week. So come back and join us. Pastor Scott will be back with us, we believe. So, in these circumstances, we do see God at work in these people's lives, in their hearts. Because, again, because He cares cares about them individually. He wants their faith to be restored. He wants their identity to be restored, their self-worth, their understanding of who they are. And all of these things are important to him. And because of how he set up the kinsman redeemer centuries ago, and now it's playing out in this way that is doing just that in their lives. But we are not done talking about how this story is so important because it's not just about way back then. It's about right now. Because we are going to see that this is a picture of God's redemption of everyone who comes to him through Jesus Christ. You see, Boaz, he didn't know it, but he was actually a picture of what Jesus Christ was going to be. It's not an accident that God is working in these people's lives in this way. It's not an accident or coincidence that Boaz steps in to be this kinsman redeemer, our one shining example of the kinsman redeemer in the Bible, and he's the great, 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 etc., grandfather of Jesus Christ. 
God is working in these circumstances. Number one, to take care of these people's lives, but number two, to set up things that they could never imagine were going to come true centuries later. God did this in all kinds of ways in the Old Testament. He did it in people's lives. There are certain people who are pictures in a small way of what Jesus was going to be. Boaz, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, all kinds of people who were tiny little pictures of what Jesus Christ was going to be many, many years later in different ways. He was going to be a redeemer. He was going to be a leader. He was going to be a king. He was going to be a prophet. He was going to be a sacrifice. The entire temple system was set up. Not just people, but institution, societal things. Uh, Jesus Christ was going to be the thing that was on the altar instead of an animal. See, you could choose to get on the altar yourself. You had sinned, and a death had to pay for that. It was either going to be you on there or something else. And so God instituted this way. So, okay, you can put an animal on there. That's going to take your place as a sacrifice for the sins. This is all a picture, even though they didn't know it at the time, what Jesus Christ was going to do in an absolute and perfect way. He was going to be the one on the altar. So Boaz is a picture of what Jesus was going to do, but so is the entire idea of the kinsman redeemer. This is so radically important, we can't even understand. It blows your mind when you see it, because we don't think about it very much. Maybe when you read Ruth, or you go through it, oh, kinsman redeemer. This is the absolute essence of what Jesus Christ did for us. The whole idea of the kinsman redeemer is, okay, people got stuck in these circumstances and they can't get out of them. They become prisoners of terrible, disastrous times. Somebody else has to rescue them. God designed a way for that to happen. And again, it's all a picture of us. Just like Boaz is the picture of Jesus Christ, Ruth is the picture of us. We need help. We need a rescuer. The only difference between Ruth and us is that we are not worthy of the second chance. We are in circumstances of our own making. We have chosen sin. We have chosen to be absolute and direct enemies of God the Father. There is absolutely no reason that he should provide a kinsman redeemer for us. There is nothing anybody has done where he said, you know what, that person deserves a second chance. I'm going to send Jesus Christ because that person has earned it. Never has that happened. None of us deserve a second chance. We deserve hell 1,000%, every single one of us. Yet, God did send a kinsman redeemer for us. And thank you, Lord, for that. Yes, amen. When you read through the Old Testament, through this lens, it's not something that, oh, that was for the Jews, it's not for us. Nope, 1,000% wrong. Anybody who ever says that. It shows you the story of how God was designing all these things throughout history so that every aspect of their lives screamed to them, you need help. Either you get on the altar or something else does. 
you're a victim of circumstance, you have to have somebody else step in and rescue you. Everything was screaming to them, you need a redeemer. And when we read through that now, we understand the riches of how God was designing all these things throughout history. These institutions, these people's lives that we now get a glimpse into to see how he was doing these things. That's why the story of Ruth was written down for us. Maybe they didn't even realize it at the time. They just thought it was an amazing story of David's, uh, you know, grandma, great-grandma, whatever it was. Let's write this down. They didn't even understand that people centuries later would be reading that. That was Jesus Christ at work in those circumstances. So here we are today. We are the ones in need. And if there's anyone here today who has never taken advantage of that rescuer, of that redeemer, every song that we sang, most of the songs we sing every single week scream this message to us. First song we sang, uh, Glorious Day, Come to the Bridge, I Needed Rescue. And then the second one, Jesus, the only one who could ever save. And then that third one, that invitation, Come. Come as you are, just like Ruth did, broken, tired, you know, grieving, whatever is going, just come. The invitation is there. The Redeemer is waiting for you to come to him. Just like Ruth came to Boaz and said, will you redeem me? He said, yes, I will. Don't worry. Don't be afraid, whatever happens. Jesus Christ says that to us. There is nobody who's ever been said, No. The invitation is there for every single one of us to take advantage of the great kingdom redeemer who redeems us out of an eternal hell and into an eternal heaven. It, it doesn't even compare <laughs> to anything you could think of in this world. Whatever the worst circumstances you could think of, whatever the best circumstance you could think of being transported one to the other, nothing could compare to the thought that we, because somebody else stepped in save us. We get to be transported from hell to heaven. If you have never experienced that before, oh my goodness, we want you to experience that today. Oh my goodness, come and talk to me. Come and talk. Find out how you can ask Jesus for that redemption. He's going to say yes. Take care of you. and Bring you in to his family. Take care of you. You had no idea all of this was going on in Ruth chapter 3, did you? It's amazing. And this is how we know that God is the author of this book. There's no way this was accidentally written down thousands of years before Jesus came along and turned all of this into reality. That's not possible. God is writing every little circumstance. He's writing every little story throughout this whole thing so that it comes together like one person wrote it because one person did write it. And thank the Lord that he did. So... I invite Derek to come up. We're going to pray together right now. Thank the Lord for his redemption in every single one of our lives. Heavenly Father, we do. We thank you. Every single one of us needed rescue. Every single one of us was broken in absolute dire circumstances. You care about every single one of us just like you cared about your people in the Old Testament, just like you cared about Naomi and Ruth, and you designed a way for a kinsman redeemer to step in their life. Thank you that you designed Boaz perfectly to step into their lives and restore their hearts and their faith in the worst circumstances. 
Thank you that you're working in every single one of our lives in the same way right now. We pray that you continue to open our hearts to what you're working in our lives. Pray that you continue to open us to trust you even more and to be bold and excited to tell people that there is help for them. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, there's a kinsman redeemer who would be so excited to step into their lives and their situation, take care of them. Be with us this time now as we stand to sing. Come as you are one more time and just open our hearts to understand the depths, the riches of what you've done in our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.